Good morning, church. Turn your Bible to the book of Genesis. Make it easy for you this morning. Third chapter. And this is not the message I was supposed to preach today. You know, the Holy Spirit has one of these kind of goofs with me that, you know, you prepare a message and you're kind of, you're kind of happy about it. You know, it's Thursday and then all of a sudden you begin to realize this is what I want to preach, but this is not what I need to preach. So let me say to you that here's a new message. And this was not on my A-list for today. I don't think there's any question that these are both complex and contentious moments that we live in. And for most of us, in this nation anyway, perhaps the most challenging in our lifetime at many different fronts. And I believe that as believers, our response demands a different response. My wife and I have been traveling a lot of late and there's something about going up to customs agent or immigration agent and they take your passport and they're looking at that picture and they're looking at those documents because they want to be absolutely sure that you are correctly identified. That that picture and that passport that you're holding corresponds to who you are. And if they're not happy about that, then you're not going to travel. It stops right there is proper identification. We started this year with a time of prayer and fasting about knowing God, identifying who God really is. And to that end, on Wednesday nights, we are doing a multi-month series about knowing God, knowing God as Father, Son, Spirit, knowing God by His voice, knowing God by His names, knowing God by His acts, actions, character. And yes, we have a midweek meeting. It's called 715. It meets at 715. It goes for one hour. We have prayer before and after if you're interested. And so nevertheless, just to let you know, a little commercial there. (laughs) Knowing God, identifying who God really is, not the version of God perhaps you have created in your own mind. And there are many versions of God out there. But I believe there's a second identification that we have to correctly make to properly navigate these times. And that is we have to know the enemy. We have to correctly identify who the enemy is. And there are lots of folks telling us who it is. Some have defined it. It's a person. Put a name there if you'd like. A person's plural. Maybe it's a political party of persons. Maybe the nations of persons. Maybe it's ethnicities of persons. Or maybe it's certain persuasions of certain persons. Draw a line. Build a wall. Protect your space. We've heard all the rhetoric. For the world, there are many definitions of the enemy. Maybe it's just as simple as those folk that don't believe the same way you believe. They don't look the same way that you look, speak the same language that you speak. 
And the world is continually defining and redefining and reinforcing those lines. And yet for the believer, we have to define our enemy very differently. Why? Because God expects something different from his people. Because we are set apart, called out. Scripture even says that we have the mind of Christ. God is demanding a different response from his people in this day. Can we all agree on that? And let me hasten to say to you this morning, this is not a political statement or a political message. But if we look at the Bible, we find that our enemy is scripturally identified. Ephesians chapter 6. I've been a believer for a moment and I have heard and taught and practiced this passage my entire life. But never more does this passage become real to me than in this moment in which we live. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. It says, our struggle is not against, thank you, it's not against flesh and blood. But, here we go, let's define it. Against the rulers, authorities, powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It gets even more specific in 1 Peter 5. The exhortation to be self-controlled and alert. And we get a very clear definition here. Your enemy, the devil. Here we go. Bam! It doesn't get any cleaner than that. And yet, I don't know about you, but most often the conflicts that I find myself in are not with direct power encounters with something from another realm. I'm not saying it never happens. I'm not saying it never happens to you, because it does. But that's the rare way that the enemy comes to my life, is to show up in my room at 3 a.m. and say, boo! <laughs> now, I, again, I'm not saying it hadn't happened. But most of the time, it's not what kind of appears in the middle of the night most of the time, it's what I have read before I go to bed. It's what I have put on the inside that is either fostered faith or fed fear, one or the other. And I want to submit to you this morning that if Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, then the antithesis of that would have to be one that would try to destroy and imperfect that faith. Scripture says that we are not unaware of his schemes. And I want to talk about something this morning that is very base, very basic, but very real, both in and outside the household of faith. And it's fear. You know, as I've looked at what comes out of people, what comes out of their mouth, and what begins to come out of their heart as a result. I'm always interested not whether they are blue state, red state folks or, but I'm more interested in where's that coming from? 
Where is, where is this fight or flight? Where is this thing coming from? What is the real fuel for your fire? And what I find for most people, it is fear. And most of us have advanced degrees in fear. We're good at it. We practice it. Some of us have made friends with it, believe it or not. Because it's become such a part of who we are. It's a garment now that we wear as something that has been completely identified and personalized. This is my funk. This is my fear. This is, this is just who I am. And maybe I can sit down with Dr. Phil and he can reinforce it for the world. Cash me outside. Now that scares me. And as much as we laugh about it, that's a fearful thing. But where did it come from? God did not originally design us with a fear factor. Where did it come from? Genesis chapter 3 I'll tell you where it came from. It says the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that God had made. And we find the serpent beginning to engage the woman. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And she replied back correctly. Yep, this is what God said. You must not eat or you'll die. Verse 4, here's a lie. You won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Right there. That was not just what we could be. It's what, this is an accusation against God himself, that he is withholding something of the highest order from me. That the glories of no sin... Uninterrupted fellowship, this beautiful creation. No viruses, no colds, never sick. This perfect environment, but yet somehow the lie came, God is holding out. And so they ate. Now it's interesting that they were used to walking with God. And when God showed up in the cool of the day to take a walk, There was something different this time, that rather than this first man and woman running out to meet their God, to be in fellowship, it says they were hiding from him. Where are you? I I, I, I was afraid. Here's the first instance in Scripture of fear. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Wow. Wow. Who told you you were naked? And you see, in this moment, all of a sudden, there had been no need for pants up until this period of time. We didn't have to worry about the pants getting tight. We didn't need pants. There were no body shaming issues. 
Because there was no shame. Because there was no sin. Because there was no fear. But the genesis of fear was what? Based on a lie. And the lie being God is holding out on you. It was a relational. It was a relational issue. And I believe that relational lie continues to you and to me today. Does God? Does God even care? Why did God? Will God? Can God? They're the very same questions that the millennia later, we still hear the same things rolling around on the inside of us. We see in Exodus 4, God calling Moses to the impossible. Got a job for you. I want you to go up against the most powerful ruler the earth has ever known, and I want you to wreck his economy. I want you to take his entire conscripted labor force, known as Israel, and I want you to bring them out of bondage. Be warm and filled. Have a great day. And Moses is doing everything he can to talk God out of it. We pick up the story in in, uh, chapter 4, Exodus 4, verse 1. What if, we'll come back to that in a moment, what if they don't believe me or listen or say, the Lord did not appear? And then God begins to unpack some things for him. He asks Moses, what's in your hand? Throw it on the ground. He takes his staff, he throws it on the ground. You know this story well. Turns into a snake. It says Moses was afraid, smart man. And then God says, pick it up by the tail. Now, God made the snake. He knew that this was not, this was not the bona fide animal planet way to approach a serpent. You pick it, you know, behind the head and all this guy. But no, you pick it up by the tail, and that pretty much leaves the business end of the snake (laughs) to do what snakes tend to do when they get hassled. Are you with me? I mean, he had Moses confront something, pick it up by the tail. And as he reached down and confronted that fear, it turned back into a staff. Now, let me say to you, Moses was going to use this trick again later, but there was more to it than just a snake. He threw down a staff representing his own authority. He picked up a staff of God's authority. I'm getting ahead of myself. But then he said, stick your hand in your cloak. He put it in and he brought it out. It was leprous. Now understand that there are a few words that in our modern parlance that grip the fear of us like the word cancer. It has weight, does it not? Cancer terrifies us. Maybe we've suffered from it. Maybe we know someone who has suffered from it. We see its effects. And so it's it's like, that's not what you ever want to hear a doctor say to you, is the C word. And Moses reaches his hand back out, and it's leprous. It was the cancer of the day. It was the AIDS of the day. There was no cure for it. You were ceremonially unclean, and it was going to kill you. He said, now put it back in. He did so, drew it out, and his flesh was made clean, Scripture says. 
You see, many times God will have us literally confront the very fears that will become our greatest assets later. We'd love to just get it from a sermon. It'd be a whole lot easier. But it was in this moment that God said, Moses, I want you to step and I'll step into and confront your greatest fears because in doing so, I'm going to insert some faith in your life that you're going to need a little bit later. So let me give you a few fear factors here this morning. The very first one is rule. What was Moses leaning on as he was talking to God? He was leaning on the staff of his own authority. And yet we know from Scripture, it says in Proverbs 3, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your what? On your own understanding. Your understanding represents your, under, your, your rule, your authority. Stephen's exhortation this morning. Fascinating that Peter didn't just say, let me come over to you. What did he say to Jesus? Command me. Do you realize there's so much more in that than we just see? We see the miracle in that he rebuked the wind and the waves. And we've heard the preaching about, you know, we took his eyes off Jesus and began to look at the circumstances and he began to sink. But the real genesis of this Peter understood there's no way on my own authority I can get out of this boat. Command me. You tell me to do it because there's a different authority if you tell me than if I tell myself. This is not a Norman Vincent Peale moment with a power of positive thinking that I can name it, claim it, you can say it. Dream your dream, baby, you can have it. No, 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 no. God, command me. Command me. See, what Moses picked up was not his authority anymore. And it's amazing how many issues of life stem from one simple thing. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? It's a real question. I mean, it's a question in your own household. Husbands and wives. You ain't the boss of me. Then children, children hear that a little bit. And then they try it on. You ain't the boss of me. No, but I'm bigger than you are. Watch this. That only works for a while, by the way. So you better get their hearts in the process, all right? But let me tell you one of the great lies of the devil. One is that he is in charge, and two is that you are. <laughs> you may as well laugh, because you're either going to laugh or cry about that. Jesus set, set it straight in Matthew 28, long before, I mean, in the same context of the Great Commission, what did he say? All authority. It's a pretty inclusive word. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Rule is without question here. And we all want God to rule over those things that we don't want to rule over. We, that we, oh God, oh, I just can't do. But anything that we feel like, we pretty much got it covered. You know, God, I, I, I really, I got, I like the eating thing like this, and I like the HBO where I got it, and, you know, and, and, and my money's all right right now, so just, this, this, I, I got that. And the frightening thing about God's rule, about lordship, which is what we're talking about, is that God will allow it to be selective. Okay, fine. You think you got it? Go ahead. Got it. 
They're the last moments when the center fielder is backing up in the sun. Got it. God says, go ahead. It's a scary thing. And let me just tell you, self-rule is always an invitation for disaster. And it's always the place where fear comes. I got to tell you. I know how badly I can mess up my life. I barely need the devil messing with me. I can blow it up all by myself. I have had almost 60 years on the planet to figure out how to blow up my life. And I know the codes, baby. (laughs) Self-rule is an invitation to fear. And fear then secondly, ultimately becomes a relational issue. You know, Jesus had two consistent statements. Fear not and ye have little faith. Two sides of the same coin, if you think about it. Over and over and over again. Fear not, ye have little faith. Somebody counted that the fear not statement is is in Scripture at least 100 times. Some folk have said 365 because they want to sell calendars, but it really isn't quite that simple. But it's somewhere, somewhere around 100 that the fear nots we find in the Bible. But faith at its very core has always had a relational basis. Faith is a word that we use it today in our New Testament context. In the current life of the church on the planet, and faith seems like something like you know, whether we can supercharge our phones or whether or not we, you know, can, can pull up to a, a charging station, whether our Tesla or whether or not we can fill up our tanks. And the more faith we have, the more stuff we can get. Nothing could be further from the truth. And the word has been, it, 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 it's so mystified now that I'm much happier with an Old Testament version of the same thought. And it's the word trust. Trust in me. You can't have faith unless you trust God. Faith is at its very core. Relational. Trust is relational. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Just believe. Mark 5, 36. Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 56, 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. The connection between the absence of fear and the presence of God. It's relational. But then it's thee over them, the reports. And bad news travels fast. Why? Because bad news sells. Correct? I mean, you think about it. Eat these foods and die. A listicle. Eat these foods and live. And so we're constantly filling our pantries and we are constantly expelling things from our pantries because the food that we now have in our pantries will kill us according to this. And, then, and so back and forth. Doctors have discovered there's something in the atmosphere called air. Stop breathing immediately. <laughs> Fear sells. Do you have cancer? Take the test. Seven signs you were already broke. (laughs) And most often the media is bringing with it 
bad news and that bad news creating a culture of fear. And let me tell you how a culture works. It starts out small, but a culture, like if you're trying to grow a, grow a culture in a laboratory, what happens? It begins to multiply and begins to propagate. Fear breeds fear. Listen to me, saints, but faith breeds a culture of faith. That's why we need to be very careful about the reports. We have to reveal the lies, number four, because fear always has a lie inherent somewhere on the inside, even if there are enough facts to make it sticky. You know, the devil comes at me with just enough truth to get me to kind of pay attention a little bit. You are. You know what I've learned to do with the devil? I've learned to agree quick and then rebuke the fire out of him. You are. You're right. I was. Now go away. I am now. But many times it's just enough truth to get our attention. And then the fear in that lie most often is worse than the reality. Now, if you are a medical professional here this morning, here's the disclaimer. I apologize in advance, particularly if you are a dentist. But how many of you, when you see a dental appointment on your calendar, you go, "Wee! yes, today. <laughs> yes, it is excavation time. Bring out the chisel and the jackhammer. Yes, I love going to the dentist. None of us. Get up in the morning happy about the dentist. The medical community today, they have words. They don't call it surgery anymore. They call it a procedure. <laughs> now we're going in for a procedure. A little bit like words like pressure, which means you're going to the moon. And the fear over that thing. You go to the dentist, like, yeah, you know. And then it's like, you walk out, that's it. That's it. I mean, you go in for the procedure and you wake up two hours later. And you're expecting, you know, guys to be over you like with chainsaws and axes and stuff like that. And you just, okay, let's do this. We've been trying to wake you up for two hours. You mean that's it? Why? Because fear has with it torment. And many times, it's, it's, it's not even the, the, the eventuality of a thing. It's how the devil plays it up and makes it so much bigger than it already is. Moses, oh, God, don't send me. Send somebody else. Fine, okay, i tell you what. You're going, but I'm going to send your brother. He can do the talking for you. It's going to be all right. We never see that he ever needed his brother to speak for him. I mean, all of a sudden, Moses got up in there, and Moses was like, yeah, I'm the man. Come on, let's do this. yet we see a very human side of Moses. The resolve of turning our what-ifs into even-ifs. Moses, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe that God sent me? And the devil loves to just write his own narrative in your what-ifs. But God wants to change our what-ifs to even-ifs. Three kids taken into exile, into Babylon, demanding that they worship according to a false, to a false God. And they said, you know what? Not going to happen. 
And I love their response here. Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Getting ready to be burned to death. They say this, even if God does not rescue us, we want you to know we will not serve your gods or worship the image set up. Even if. Let me just tell you, the devil doesn't much know what to do with that. You know why? You can't kill a dead person. And scripture says we've been crucified with Christ. Dead people aren't afraid to die. Even if I will not worship your gods, I will not stoop to become part of this narrative, part of this fear, part of this prejudice in this culture. I will not do it. Even if. We have to fall out of covenant with fear. Some of us have worn it so long. It's like, yeah, I got this broken in. This feels good. Look at this. I'm like, you look like a fool in it. Yeah, but it feels good. You know, your wife occasionally purge your closet and you are not wearing this anymore. But I've had it since college. Yeah, and you're going away from here since college too. But we, we, but we do the same thing with fear. Oh, this is just who I am. It's not who God made you to be. And the prescription for fear, perfect love, cast out all fear, First John. Most fear is connected to an inadequate revelation of God. Somewhere there's a relational disconnect going all the way back to the garden. How do I deal with my fear? Let me help you. You need greater revelation of God. We're going to pray before we leave here today. But yes, there are fears that we need, to, we need to battle with. But the reality is we need a more complete revelation of who daddy is, who the father is, what the father has already done on our behalf. First John 4, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives that fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who, may, who fears is not made perfect in love. And lastly... Realized and released. What are you afraid of? Simply fear is the vacuum that's created when faith is removed. Let me say that again. Fear is the vacuum that's created when faith is removed. That Greek word phobos is where we get our different phobias from. And we all have one or two. Oh, yeah, man, I know you try to cover yours up and all of your bluster. I ain't afraid of that. Yeah, you are. Your anger is just a different manifestation. Yeah, you're afraid of it. And that anger will make us do things. That fear will make us do things that we ordinarily wouldn't do. Fear is never the right motivation for decision making. Faith is. I got a call this week from a young man. His wife's been struggling from another state, was in this church for years. He said, Pastor, I'm just freaking out. He said, I don't even have a diagnosis, but something things going on my wife. I've been on the internet. I've done the research. There you go. Whose report? Doesn't even have a diagnosis from the doctor, but he's already, the devil's already given him one, and he's already putting his wife in an early grave. And I had to just walk him through it. I said, friend, your issue is not sickness for your wife even if she is sick that's been atoned for your enemy is fear you need to know what it is that you're shooting at here 
That's what we, that's our real, our enemy. Death's been defeated. The devil. I'm so afraid of Satan. Here's a little key. He's a lot more afraid of you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Oh my goodness. When God's people finally get hold of that, it's going to be a game changer. I'm just telling you, it's going to be a game changer when we finally get hold of that fact. Last night, my wife had to wake me up. I'm not a dreamer. But I mean, the devil whooped me last night. This morning, as I was leaving the house, do you have any idea what your dreams were last night? I'm not even sure, but I had an entire night that the devil just just hassled me. Anybody had a night like that? I mean, heart and breathing and stuff. I mean, it just, I don't need to go into details, but it was a moment. Just leading up to getting into this pulpit this morning and talking to you about fear. Don't you do it. Devil hates freedom. See, it's easy to control through fear. But you get dangerous when you get free. Psalm 91. Tiff, why don't you and team come on up? He will cover you with his feathers. And under his wings you will find refuge. What does that speak of to you? Intimacy. Proximity. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. And a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right, but it will not come near to you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Let's pray.